Uh, today we're continuing the Gospel of Matthew, and we are in chapter 19. For those of you who like to follow along in the Bible, we're in uh, Matthew 19. We're looking at, uh, again, at verses 1 through 12 as kind of the, uh, it's the jumping off point for what we're talking about. Today is the second part of a two-part ser- sermon uh, dealing with the issues of divorce and remarriage uh, as, as Jesus uh, is, is teaching, and, and the reason why we're talking about this is because we're just going through the Gospel of Matthew, and, and this is the topic. This is where he lands, and of course, there are a lot of questions around this because uh, this is a, a topic which really affects all of our lives. Almost everybody here probably has someone they either know or related to or themselves have gone through divorce or, uh, or children of divorce. And so it's an important topic, and, and one of the things that people often ask me is, you know, uh, especially folks that come from kind of a, a, a Catholic background or a high church background, they'll ask me, am I a priest? And I'll often tell folks, I'm not your priest, because the idea of priest means the grace of God flows through the priest to the people. That's why in the Catholic church, for example, you need to confess, go to confession. Uh, you have extreme unction at the end of life. You have the blessing of marriage. The idea is that grace flows through the priest to you, and we would say, no, you have the grace of God can flow into your life because you have access to God, and uh, you don't need necessarily a priest, but as a pastor, oftentimes I kind of interpret the scripture for people. That's, that's really what I do, a lot of what I do, because this is written between two and 4,000 years ago, depending on what part we're looking at in the scripture, and so how do we interpret ideas, concepts, understandings from that long ago to today? And divorce is an interesting one because is one of the things that uh, one of the things that it gets clearly is the same issue across the centuries, across the millennia. Broken marriages is something that's been happening ever since human beings started getting married. And uh, and you know how do we work this out? What do we do with these things? So that's what we're going to be looking at today. I'm not going to be looking at last week. We looked at what Jesus said about this passage. This week we're going to be looking at a couple questions asked to this passage. So let's have a quick word of prayer because this is a heavy one. And uh, I want to go into humility before the Lord. So let's pray. Father God, Lord, we lift up to you this time. And Father, just pray your Holy Spirit would inhabit everything that is said and done and, and uh, keep, our, keep correction in, in, the place, in place. Uh, if I misspeak, Lord, may your Spirit correct it in the hearts of those who hear. And Father, uh, we also pray as we walk through this. This is an uncomfortable topic for a lot of people And so we just pray that your spirit will guide them, hold them as we walk through it together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to start off by saying uh, I'm going to share with you kind of my journey through this for the last 30 years. And uh, that involves tons of reading, books I've read, different teachings I've heard, different studies I've done and try and distill all that down into, uh, you know, a 35-minute sermon. And that's hard to do. Uh, So if you disagree with something I say, you're welcome to that disagreement. Because there are so many opinions and stuff that are out there uh, regarding this topic. I'm just going to share with you where I come from on it. And if you want to talk about it more deeply later on, because someone sent me an email asking me some questions about this, and I told them, you know, this is a topic that really requires a seminar, not just a sermon. Because uh, it's just so many nuances that can come into it. And everybody's life is different. Everybody's life is nuanced in different ways. And it's hard to just say, here's the formula you apply across the board to everything. 
So we're going to look at some theological issues. We're going to look at some practical issues. And again, if you disagree with me, that's fine. Uh, but I'm just going to share with you honestly from my heart, this is, where, this is how I have learned to deal with this, or I have I've dealt with it at least today. This is, this is where I'm at today, because this is one of those things that you're constantly wrestling with as a pastor, this issue of divorce within the church and remarriage. And I'm talking about divorce within the church between people who are already professed Christians. You have a whole different layer of questions if this happens, what, something happens before you're a Christian or one of you is a Christian, the other one's not. So there's all kinds of different nuances. This is assuming you're both believers, you're a man and a wife, and, and you've been married and, you're, and, and a divorce took place somewhere. Okay? So just to give you some context. So let's look at the scripture, and we're not going to go through it all, but this is the scripture that this came out of, the questions came out of. And we saw in Matthew 19, Jesus is being, again, tested by some Pharisees. And it says this, starting at verse 3. Uh, some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, we talked about this in depth last week. So we're not going to talk about it in depth again this week. If you're interested in that sermon, it's online, okay? Haven't you read, he replied, that in the beginning the Creator made the male and female and said... For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But that is not the way it was from the beginning. I tell, you, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. And at that point, the disciples kind of freak out and they go, if that's the case, it's better not to marry at all, which is a strange uh, reaction. And then Jesus starts talking about, well, living the single life is perfectly fine. But we're not going to get into that this week. So what we pointed out last week was that this conversation was more tricky than it appears at first. You know, the, the Pharisees were coming to Jesus saying, for any and any reason can a person divorce his wife because you had different rabbinical teachings at the time. They all came from the, from the law of Moses, but some said, if your wife displeases you in any way, any way, you can divorce her. And it was from a male point of view, by the way. And, uh, and then the other kind of rabbinical school of thought was, no, that's very narrow reasons for the permission of divorce. Jesus falls into that very narrow uh, permissive for divorce, which is if there's marital unfaithfulness. We talked about that last week. We also talked about that the view that Jesus has of marriage as he presents it is, you can see it in his conversation with the Pharisees. The Pharisees keep going into the law of Moses, saying the law says this, or Moses permitted this. Jesus keeps going back to the heart of God. If you reread this, and you can do that later on in your time, if it's your first time through this, they say law of Moses. Jesus says, yes, but in the beginning, this is how God created this is what his intention was. And then they keep going back to the law, and Jesus is like, yeah, but it wasn't that way from the beginning. Jesus has a concept of marriage that he wants for the new established kingdom of God, which he is establishing on earth. And that community which he is establishing is called the church. You need to understand who we are as the church. We are part of the newly established kingdom of God, which was established in Christ. 
And we are brought into this kingdom through repentance and forgiveness. We're brought into this kingdom of God, which is already but not yet. It's already established on earth, but it's not yet at the full glory that it will be when it comes to the time of, you know, the new heaven and the new earth and all that. But it's already here. And there's an ideal that is within this new kingdom community of marriage, which is very high. It is a pre-fall union of compatibility and love. It's so high, the view is so high that the Apostle Paul uses it as an illustration of Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ. When he describes uh, marriage at the end of the description, he says, I'm talking about the church. This is how Christ loves the church. This is how the church is to love Christ. It's a very high view of marriage. And to be clear, Jesus says it's not the will of God for anyone to divorce. It's not God's will. And when they said, well, Moses commands us to give them a certificate, Jesus is like, Moses didn't command you to divorce your wives. Moses, as a concession, because you guys are kind of, you are hard-hearted, and a woman's life was made, she was actually in danger, if she just got kicked out of the house, that you had to give her a certificate of divorce to say that she was not committing adultery by running out on her husband, but that she had been kicked out. Jesus says, he didn't command that you do this. It's a concession, because your hearts are hard, but it wasn't that way from the beginning. In the beginning, this was meant to be an insoluble relationship of compatibility and love where a man and a woman together make up the image of God because it's in the image of God humanity was created, male and female. He created them. That's the portion Jesus actually quotes from Genesis. He could have chosen from all these different verses. He chose this one where he describes the image of God as being male and female. He created them. So that is to say that before we go on about divorce, that if you are married, you need to understand that your marriages are held in very high esteem by God. And I think we have a hard time getting our heads around that. We, get our, we have a hard time getting our heads around a lot of things about God. Like we know God forgives us of our sins because of the sacrifice of Christ. But we have a hard time really understanding what does that really mean? I mean, he forgives people of humanity their sins, past, present, and future. All of humanity, he carries that on his shoulders. Is that just like my sin? And we tend to think of our sins, and, and most of you I know, you hardly qualify as heinous sinners. You know, some of you may have some stuff in your background, but most of you, you know, there's not a whole lot of disgusting or, or terribly violent sin in your life. But, but be clear, Jesus died for the disgusting and horribly violent sin that takes place in the world. He carried the burden for all that. It's hard for us to get our heads around that. It's hard for us to get our heads around the idea that God can be very personally knowledgeable of who you are as a human being, and yet he's the one that created the entire vast universe. And the more we understand the universe, the more vast it becomes. It's hard to get our head around that. Yet the one that created all this, whereas the earth is a tiny speck in this, this huge thing, he knows you, and he cares about you. Not just knows you, he knows everything about this creation. He knows when a sparrow falls. He knows you. It's hard to get our heads around. We just kind of go, okay, but it's hard to get our heads around. In the same way, it's hard for us to get our heads around that our marriages are more than just a social contract in which families are formed, children are given stability, and taxes are paid. 
you know, that it's more than that, that it's more than just a promise that we made to our, in front of our friends at a, at a, a church ceremony, if you went to a church or if you just got married in the rat house uh, or a civil ceremony, you know, that we got together and made a promise. It's more than that. It is a, it is a living illustration to the world as to how Christ loves the church. Christian husbands, how you treat your wife is a testimony to the world about how Christ loves and cares for the church. And wives, how you regard your husband is a testimony to the world as how the church is to love and regard uh, Christ. That's a heavy thing to carry, yeah? No pressure. Your marriages just represent, you know, you know, God's love in general. So go out there and make sure they're perfect. Because, you know, all eyes are on you. It's a little bit, it's heavy. But it also is hard for us to get our heads around. But you need to understand that. So with all that being said, though, if you're married, stay married. And, and I say that and you kind of laugh about that. But I also know that that's not easy. And then you might need some help in that. And we'll talk about that later. But just to understand, before your relationship goes cold, get help. And men, let me tell you, our wives are more relationally intuitive in general than us. And if our wives tell us in our relationships that we need to work on something and we need help, you'd be a wise man to listen and to be a part of that and to say, okay, then we're going to go get help. Even if in your mind everything's hunky-dory. Because it's not. If she says it's not, it's not. Trust me, after 30 years of being a pastor and doing way more marital counseling than seminary ever prepared me for, I thought coming out of seminary is going to be just all preaching and doing Bible studies. <sighs> way more complicated. They tried to tell us that, but we just didn't believe it. Get help before the hole gets so deep that it's hard to get out of. It's easier to make little changes than have to make big changes. So there you go. So with all that being said, the way we're going to approach this thing with divorce is now I'm going to ask some questions to the text that I've heard often. And we really only have time for two big questions, but I think if we can work through these two big questions, then it'll help uh, answer some of the other questions you might have. But if we're done after today and you still have questions and you want to talk about, not just theoretical stuff. I'm not interested in like, oh, let's play this little, you know, mind experiment. You know, what if someone, you know, you know, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in you. If you have questions about your relationship, then we can talk, okay? All right, so this being said, why does divorce, and particularly remarriage, seem to have no end regarding the sin aspect? This is one of the unique things about how Jesus describes divorce and remarriage, is that when one remarries, then this adultery thing kicks in, and it feels like, the way Jesus expresses it, that there is never any end. If you are divorced as a believer and you enter into a marriage relationship with someone else, everybody involved in that, the one who instigated the divorce, the one who remarried, and plus the one that remarried, uh, came into it from the outside and, and married one of those spouses, everybody's considered an adulterer. Everybody. And there's no end. It's not like then you got married, you committed the sin of adultery and the remarriage, and then, and then everything was okay after that. You know, it's, it's perpetual. And it's really one of the few sins that seems to be perpetual. 
It's like why they say it's easier to be forgiven of murder than it is for your sin. You know, murder, oh, I killed a guy. Well, I'm really sorry, Lord. Okay, you're forgiven. All right. I got divorced. Oh, I got remarried. Uh, no forgiveness? I, I'm an adulterer? I'm an adulterer now and forever? Well, I murdered a dude and I was forgiven. Yeah? So we're going we're gonna to deal with these questions. What's going on here? Why does the divorce seem to have no end? It's kind of this limbo of life that never finds any resolution. And when you take these two passages together, both out of Matthew where Jesus talks about divorce, the hammer comes down. It seems to put an end cap on anybody involved in this ever moving on with their life and getting remarried. Matthew 19.9, which we looked at today, he says, I tell you, if anyone divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, like most of the things from Scripture, it's read from a male point of view. But there's also a reason for it being a male point of view. And I, I've told, I tell this to men when we come into marital counseling. That a lot of the direction of the marriage has to do with the attitude of the man and his relating to his wife. Because just by nature, if you nurture, 99% of the time by nature, if you nurture the relationship as a man with your wife, she will respond to that. And she will do everything she can to make your life and, and the family's life better. But as a man, if you neglect her, then you're going to see the whole marriage begin to turn. And so that's one reason why it's from a male point of view. The other reason why is, societally speaking, women didn't have the right to, to get a divorce unless all the elders of the village agreed to it. But the man did. He could pretty much say, you're done. We're done. See ya. So Jesus, one of the things he says here. From a male, from the, if you instigate the relationship ending and you, the one who instigated it, marry another woman except for marital unfaithfulness, then you commit adultery. You instigated it, you marry someone else, you committed the adultery. Matthew 5, which is found in the Sermon on the Mount, is the one that just kind of blows people's minds. It says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife, and get, uh, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, Anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And when you read that, he's basically saying, yeah, you commit the sin. You, let's take it from the, how he writes it from the male. So you as a man, you force this divorce into this marriage. And by forcing the divorce, because it wasn't for marital unfaithfulness, forcing the divorce... You put her into the position of being an adulteress, plus anyone that marries her becomes an adulterer. And we read that and we think, well, wait a minute, that doesn't sound fair. And I know our German friends, man, we love things to be fair. This doesn't seem fair, does it? I mean, just be honest. It's okay. It doesn't seem very fair. You're the one that's pushing this sin in the, in the breakup of this relationship, and yet your spouse is considered to become an adulteress if she marries someone else. Why? What's going on there? Well, one of the things which really makes this passage difficult, and we have to deal with it, we can't run away with it, we can't put it on the shelf, is because Jesus speaks in this passage with new kingdom language. And what I mean by that is there are times in the Scripture when Jesus speaks from an Old Testament perspective. And when he speaks from an Old Testament perspective, he pretty much often, he says so oftentimes. But more often, when he speaks from a new kingdom perspective, he very much says it, he has this formula. 
And you'll see it throughout the Sermon on the Mount, which is where the Matthew 5 passage comes from. It has been said, and then he'll quote something. And then he'll say, but I tell you. So for an example, I use all the time. It has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you'll find this formula throughout chapters 5, 6, and 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. And who has the right to redefine the Word of God? God. When Jesus does this, he is saying something profound about himself. Because only God has the right to say, it has been said, anyone who divorces must give their wife a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, and then there's a redefinition there. Only God has the right to redefine the Word of God. And so when Jesus does this, he is saying something profound about himself, that he is God among us. He has the authority to do this. And here's an example where he does it, where he, does, he uses old kingdom language. Uh, I use this all the time. So if you've been here, you've heard me use this. Sorry if this is the same things over and over again. But here's a good example. When he speaks to someone who's an expert in the law, it says, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with the question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like this, Love your neighbor as yourself. Look at this last, look at verse 40. This is crucial. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What Jesus is doing here is he's answering this, this expert in the law from the law. He's answering an Old Testament question, Old Testament perspective, with an Old Testament type answer. Okay? That's important to understand because later Jesus redefines things in the Gospel of John and says this. Jesus is speaking with his disciples and he says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. By this all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So what's the new part of the command? Is the new command to love one another? No, that's, not the, that's not nothing new. The command to love one another is an Old Testament command. What is different is the context by which you love. In the Old Testament, it's love your neighbor as yourself. Who's, who's the context upon which you base love? Yourself. In the redefined area here in John, the context is who? As I've loved you, so you must love one another. Who's the context by which we love in the redefined kingdom of God? Christ. As Christ loved you. So you're not called Old Testament, I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. Which a lot has to do with how well you feel about yourself will extend to how, how much you love your neighbor. If you have a low self-esteem or you kind of hate yourself or you just kind of roll out of bed, didn't get your coffee and you're like, eh, my life sucks. Then everybody around you sucks. Right? You ever been there? Jesus is like, no, it's not based on you. The new command to love, is the context is based on how Christ loved us. And there is no, there's no changing that. There's no wiggle room in that. There's no Christ had a bad day, therefore I can hate my neighbor. The context is Christ. That's the new kingdom context of how we are to love. Christians read this Matthew passage, and they think that's the beginning of end. I've got to love my neighbor as myself. That's Old Testament. He answers that from an Old Testament perspective. New kingdom, church life, the community of Christ, founded in Christ, is to love one another as Christ loved us. 
So coming back to these passages, what makes these difficult is that he starts these passages with new kingdom language. Especially you see it in, the, in, the, in five, you've heard it. It's been said, anyone that divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, when he does this, this is the new kingdom expectation. And this is never going to change. The new kingdom expectation is never going to change. And we need to get that in our head. Jesus has a very high expectation for what marriage is to be within the community of faith because marriage within the community of faith is an illustration of Christ's love for the church, the church's love for Christ. It is very important to Christ that this living illustration be one which is glorifying to Christ and glorifying to the Father. So this is, the, this is where we're at, the expectations here, and these, these are never going to change. But the issue then becomes, why? Why won't this ever change? Why does he say this? Well, the issue of why this is never going to change is this. If we are in a covenant relationship in which you called upon the witness of God to bless the relationship, and under whose authority you voluntarily submitted yourself, then you don't have the authority then to end the covenant. And this is interesting. This is a part of something that I kind of joke around, but I, I, I think there's something to it. If you look in chapter 5 where we drew this part out about, you know, divorce, right around that same area in chapter 5, Jesus talks about oath-taking. He says you shouldn't take oaths in the name of the Lord because if you take an oath in the name of the Lord, God expects you to keep it. So Jesus just says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and you don't need to pat it and add to it a bunch of, you know, by God's, you know, whatever, you know, by God's power, by God's name, by God's grace. Don't be taking oaths. And in every marriage that I've ever been a part of, witnessed or performed or was in myself, every marriage, church marriage, we love taking oaths. We love making promises in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. We love that. There's, a, there's kind of a, a poetry to it. There's, kind of, there's, a, there's a bit of this and a sense of the depth of the gravitas of what we're doing. But, but with that said, very people go into it with any depth of gravitas. Most, most young couples, they have no real deep understanding of what they're getting into as marriage. And, when, and if I were to say to them as a pastor, do you want to just drop any oaths? Do you just want to say, you know, do you take this woman? And you just go, yep. And you just leave it at that. We're not going to say in the name of the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit and all that. Most people are going, I don't want to do that. I want the poetry. I want the depth. I want that commitment that's spoken out. Especially the women. They want their husband to say it. There's a commitment here. And it's in the name of God. And when you voluntarily submit yourself to that kind of oath and covenant, then you do not have the authority to change it. This is something that people got to get their heads around. This is one reason why Jesus says, be careful about making oaths. Because when you make an oath, you're submitting yourself to the authority of God. And that is unchanged. You can't just take it back. You don't go, you know, yeah, yeah, I made all these oaths when I got married, but now I'm doing to take backsies, and I'm going to control my own life. And this is what people want to do. They want to control their own life, so they forget about the oath. The oath didn't mean anything. Oh, it was just a bunch of stuff we said in the wedding. It meant something to God. And so this is why you're in this unresolved place. If you just 
Step out of your marriage, except for reasons of marital infidelity, which we'll get into more deeply later. If you just step out and say, I'm going to go another direction. I'm going to go marry that person. or I'm going to go do this. You don't have the right to say that the covenant is over because you voluntarily submitted yourself and this relationship to God. Do you understand that? And if you voluntarily submit yourself to God, the only way you get out of that is through the breaking of that relationship with God. And so it's a sin. And unless this is dealt with, unless the, the condition of you know, what the relationship is with your, your former spouse, unless this is dealt with, no matter who walks out of it, they end up in a place of adultery. If you instigate it, you're in a place of adultery because you, you tried to pull yourself out from the covenant and marry someone else. It's just not, you're still under the old covenant. You're under the covenant of, your, of the marriage that you made in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As is the spouse that you kick to the curb, let's assume again from a male perspective, she is still under the covenant just because you kicked her to the curb She's still under the covenant because she doesn't have the authority to pull herself out from under the covenant. You understand that? And then the person who marries the one that's been kicked to the curb, let, made to leave, he's committing adultery because he's marrying someone who is already under a covenant agreement with another person. And if this is never dealt with, then everyone is in this place of adultery. Okay? So that's what's going on. This is why it's important to know what you're getting into when you get married. I know no young person knows what they're getting into when they get married. I've been married for over 30 years. I still barely know what I've gotten into. But this is, this is something to get your head around. This is, this is we, we deal with a living God. And when we make promises and oaths in the name of that living God, that living God takes it seriously because... You're calling upon his grace. You're calling upon his character. You're calling upon his majesty. He takes that seriously. So then, where's grace? Where's forgiveness? What do you do? This is why for Christians, this has caused so much different, causes divisions, causes fights, causes, causes, you know, there's, has allowed for hundreds of books to be written on the topic. Because what do you do? How do you take forgiveness, which is talked about in the Scripture all the time? How do you take grace, which is talked about all the time in the Scripture, and yet bring it into this one place that it seems like the sin of getting remarried after a divorce is a sin which is committed in perpetuity and never ends? How do you deal with that? Well, first I want to tell you, if you're a victim of infidelity and you got divorced... And you're not really under any expectation to marry or, or not marry. You, you kind of, if, if marital infidelity is, is in the, what caused the breakdown or is a major part of the breakdown, you know, then you're kind of in the clear. It's, it's that one, one exception. Jesus says there's benefits to living the single life, which is kind of an interesting turn given how he highly regards the kingdom marriage, but it's really up to you. Now, this other thing is in my opinion. In my opinion, if you're divorced and your former spouse has gotten into another relationship, they've either remarried or they've been sexually active in a different place, then you have that, you're kind of under the exception as well. Now, some people will disagree with me on that, and that's fine. But I'm just telling you where I'm at on that. So if you got divorced, 
and your spouse, former spouse has already gotten remarried or they're in a relationship with someone else, then you're also in that exception. But what about divorces that don't involve infidelity? As a pastor, I've been doing, like I said, I've been pastoring a long time, and I've done a lot more marriage counseling than I ever expected I was going to do. I've been witness to more divorces than I would like to, like to admit in a, in a church. It's, a divorce is as prevalent in the church as it is outside the church. And that's just a fact of statistics. It is there. And the vast majority of the ones that I've been personally kind of either witnessed or helped counsel or be part of, Christian marriages, the vast majority of them do not end because one of them stepped out on the other sexually. The vast majority of Christian marriages, that is not, at least that's not the, the instigating purpose. Usually the instigating purpose is something just they just, they've stopped communicating, there's a loss of love, there's mistrust that has built up, there may be some issues from the past which are now just, you know, they're just, they're toxic and they're just poisoning the marriage. There's lots of different things. Very rarely is it because of infidelity. It does happen, but it's rare. Now, it's, it's common that after the marriage breaks up, before the divorce is final, that one of them goes off and has an affair or, or has someone that they jump in with. But the, but the beginning cause is very rarely infidelity. So what do you do about that? Well, first, the question I have, and this is a question that I think a lot of us have, is that is there something to marital unfaithfulness which has a wider meaning than just a sexual relationship with someone outside of marriage? Is there, is there something that's a, a wider meaning to this? And I think one of the verses we need to look at in answering that question is how Jesus defined adultery in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is another one of his, you've heard it said, but I tell you statements. And he says this, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And in that sense, he's being, you've heard it said, don't sleep with someone else. Don't have sex with someone who's not your spouse. Okay, he's clear that this is what they meant by adultery. But I tell you, this is what makes his, but I tell you, have punch. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Well, verses like this, I mean, you need to be careful with, right? Because if we want to use a verse like this to then bring it back and attach it to the place that only through marital unfaithfulness is a person allowed to get divorced, well, anyone who's looked at anyone with a little, <laughs> well, now you're an adulterer. And I can tell you, and I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that, uh, that I'm anything other than a, 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 a male, that we're visual by nature. There has been more than one time in the 30 years that I've been married that there's been a, <laughs> you know? It's just the way it is. I'm sorry if that's devastatingly disappointing to some of you, that I am indeed human and flawed. But if this becomes the case, the danger is then you could pretty much, you know, we could all be accused of adultery. You know, everyone could. So then you become this issue, okay, well, okay, how do we not allow this to get out of hand? Well, how do we handle this? Because if this gets out of hand, then, you know, we can just divorce our spouses and say, well, I know that you looked at so-and-so lustfully, or if you looked at pornography, you know, why else do you look at pornography other than lust? You don't look at it for, you know, the photographic quality of the pictures. Come on. So what do we do? We tend to become armchair lawyers in this time. So we need, to be, we need to be careful with these because we don't want to then just use this as an excuse to divorce for any and every reason. Because then you become a Pharisee. 
When you're looking for loopholes in the, in the rules so you can get away with something, you're becoming a Pharisee. You need to be always going back to what is the heart of it. That's what Jesus does with the Pharisees. They say, is it right for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus says, haven't you read when God created them? He created them male and female. You know, he goes back to the heart of God. We have to always be aware as believers who are under grace and not law. We need to go to the heart of God. What is God's heart? And I would say, this is where, this is, this is me. Is it fair to say then that Jesus understood infidelity as something more than simply a physical act. And I would say, clearly he does. Because that's the question. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, the physical act. But I tell you, if you even look, if you allow your mind to go there, which allows your heart to go there, then eventually your body follows. And if you even look in the place of, of with lust, you are in that place of adultery because now you're already beginning to shift your love and your allegiance from your spouse to this other person. And maybe you have no intention to be in any kind of true caring relationship with that person. It means just straight up lust. But regardless, it's going to break the covenant that you've made with your spouse. It says if you even look there and your heart begins to go there, then you're already there. And that is going to the place of intention. Jesus always goes back to the place of intention. Unless he specifically is going, he's, he's playing law you know, not playing, but he's answering a question that's a test on him from a law perspective, like the, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. This fulfills the law and the prophets. All right? But when he's going, you've heard it said, but I tell you, he's always going back to intention. And that's what he does here. So then the question becomes then, okay, if Jesus understands that infidelity is something more than just simply a physical act, then is it fair to say that if a man isn't loving his wife as Christ loves the church because he's beating her up or he's abusing her emotionally or mentally, you know, he's treating her like a slave or vice versa, she's, she's being manipulative and cruel toward her husband, tearing him down all the time, treating him like a slave. You know, I've been in situations, I have been in a few situations, just one that I know of, where uh, the woman was physically abusive towards her husband, brutally, like he was covered with bruises, then I would say that this person, these people are not being faithful to the understanding that Christ has about Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ. Christ does not abuse the church. Christ dies for the church. He sacrificed for the church. He gave the, the church our direction. He is our hope. He is our strength. He doesn't abuse the church in any way. Now, the church sometimes has been a pretty unlovely bride toward Christ. And this is kind of what the whole book of Hosea is illustrating in the Old Testament. But there is, in my opinion, a break in the fidelity if there's this abuse that's going on. And there can be even a break in fidelity about things like you know, pornography issues. Those are huge in the church. And let's not kid ourselves. Pornography is one of the number one things that men are involved in the church that they're all afraid to admit or talk about. And because we want to hide in the darkness of our sin, it just allows it to fester and grow. But is pornography issues then a break in marital fidelity? What if one of the party wants to work through these issues, but the other one doesn't want to see any change? I've run into this far too often. A couple will come for help, 
But really only one came for help. The other came to, to appease them and say, look, I tried, but it didn't work. So is this an act of fidelity when one says, I'm gonna, I, we want to we come, we want to make changes, and the other one's like, yeah, tell me what I need to hear. I've had that. Are they both working on restoring fidelity? Are they both working on making this marriage a glory to God? Are they both working toward the illustration of how Christ loves the church, the church loves for Christ? What do we do with that? But, at the other hand, we have to also make, we have to make a line somewhere. Because where do you just kind of say, well, this, is, this, this falls under this category of marital unfaithfulness, therefore I'm getting divorced. If we go down that road, we start becoming Pharisees. Where we just manipulate the word of God to make it convenient for us. So what do we do with it? Where does grace come in? How do we deal with that perpetual feeling of, according to Jesus, we can never be made right in this. I had a friend who was about 20 years older than me when I was just started pastoring, and he and his wife had been in the church before I got there. They were already established leaders. And at the time I got to know him, he had been married about 20 years, close to 25 years. They had three kids. Two of them were adult or close to adults. And... Uh, and then they had one that was born way afterward, like a huge fan. Anyways, he was a gentle guy, sweet guy, good friend, very supportive, especially for a young pastor that didn't know anything, uh, didn't know how much he didn't know. And uh, I used to talk with him a lot, and he was a very open guy. They were very open about the fact that their marriage had started in a very non-Christian way. We would have these things on Valentine's Day, these Valentine's Day banquets, and one of the things that people would do, on the, uh, we would do is the Valentine's Day banquet, we're all eating and whatnot. They would ask couples to come up and just share how they met. And it'd always be, you know, most of the time it was something like, well, like my wife and I, we met in university when we were freshmen and started dating, and we dated all through college. We never dated anyone else in university. We broke up now and then, but we never dated anyone else. And then we got married. Uh, with a year left in university, and uh, yeah, and that was our story. We got married. Uh, I had never really, you know, had a girlfriend before. She was my first really deep, long-term relationship, and still stays that way. And everyone's like, oh, isn't that sweet? Oh, yeah. All the old ladies, oh, that was sweet. And this guy would get up with his wife, and he goes, yep. Well, as you know, I used to own the tavern in, uh, in the other town there, and we served pretty good pizza, and one day... Uh, Sue, because everyone's spreading Sue. Sue walked in, and I just thought, wow, that's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. I'm going to go for it. So I began to pursue Sue, even though I was on my second marriage at the time. And I pursued Sue to the point that she got into a relationship with me, and she got pregnant. So I divorced my second wife and married Sue. And we've been married 25 years, praise the Lord. And the people be like, Yay? Seriously. <laughs> I think you got a kick out of this reaction. People are like, <laughs> And then they're almost afraid to ask anyone else how they met after that story. You're like, that's enough. I don't want to know anymore. But he was a guy, again, he was very open about stuff. And uh, one time, after a couple of years, we got to the place where we, uh, 
he trusted me. And I could ask him, I asked him, I asked him one time, I go, Fred, do you feel like you did the right thing in your relationship with your previous two wives by divorcing them and moving on, divorcing them, moving on to your relationship with Sue, which, again, had lasted 25 years, produced three kids. And I remember asking him this, and, and he kind of says, no. So I used to justify myself because one of my wives had mental health issues. One of my wives was just miserable. So I used to justify myself. But no, I don't really feel I did, I did the right thing, not as a Christian anyways. So then I asked him, well, how does this affect your current relationship? Because you've been in this current relationship for over 20 years. You have three kids. How does, this, how does it linger? Does it linger in your relationship? And, and he gave a, a very deep answer. And he, to, at least I thought, he says, you know, years ago, I realized I have never had asked God's forgiveness for the way I had acted in the previous marriages. Even in those ones, and he didn't say this, but even the ones where his wife was mentally ill, and you could say, well, that really wasn't on him. There were some things that he did that he felt was wrong in that relationship. He goes, I never asked for God's forgiveness in these places because I didn't want Sue to feel like I was repenting for having marrying her. Because I didn't want her to think that I regretted marrying her. Because, ladies, think about how you would feel if your husband said, I need to, I need to repent for having, ever having married you. Yeah, it's not, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a Valentine's Day conversation, certainly, is it? You know? <laughs> but even if it weren't a Valentine's Day, well, let me tell you something. This happened in my life. This is a, kind of a different thing, but it's kind of the same emotional thing. My father-in-law is Mormon. And the Mormons have this weird thing that you have to be married in order to become a god of your own planet. And my father-in-law, because my mother-in-law is not Mormon, can never become a god of his own planet because they weren't married in the temple. So what the Mormon church, when my father-in-law got Alzheimer's and dementia, because uh, they told him, well, if you marry spiritually another person, then you can become a god. And you never even meet this other person. You know, she may already be dead. She's just someone that never had a husband, so she could never become a goddess. The only way you become a goddess is if your god draws you up to being coming a goddess of the planet. So the Mormon church offered my father-in-law, we'll give you this marriage to another woman, even though you'll never have to meet her. Cindy's mom was not up for that. Cindy's mom isn't Mormon, but she's like, you're not going to marry in the temple another person, and we're just like hanging out, and your church kind of looks at us like we're just living together as boyfriend and girlfriend after we've been together for over 50 years in marriage. But when he got enough dementia, and he always refused to do it until he got dementia, and he got talked into it, and he walked through that temple, and he spiritually married him to another woman who he's never met, without getting his wife's permission to do this. And do you think that that has hurt the relationship, even though he has dementia and she can't really blame him for that? Oh, yeah. It hurt. It hurt. So how do you repent in this situation without having your spouse feel like you're saying that you regret that you married them? How do you repent from, even though you recognize the sin in your life when you, you got this divorce, how do you repent from that without your... Your spouse thinking you're saying that you repent, you regret marrying them. And what he, what he talked about then, he said, you know, so we went to this marriage seminar, and the spirit was just really heavy on him. 
And he, and he finally confessed to her. And it was causing, you know, he, he, he was kind of withdrawing from her because he wasn't even sure how he should feel about her. And this was bugging her, but she wouldn't, he wouldn't tell her why he was withdrawing. And so finally he told her, this is my concern. I feel like I need to repent for my actions towards my other wives, but I don't want you to feel like I regret marrying you. And that's a very nuanced place, right? And so the question then became, well, where is grace then? How does this guy move forward? Or does he just sit there feeling a little uncomfortable about his relationship with his wife, whom he's been with for over 20 years and being terrified of sermons like today, of hearing sermons about marriage and divorce and just feeling that wave of guilt go over him? How does he deal with this? Where is grace? Well, grace and forgiveness come with repentance. I want to share with you these verses out of the, God, uh, the letter of John. And this is an important one. I think we need to, you know, this is where we need to understand the whole of the scripture. Because as believers, especially being conservative believers, we tend to be a little more conservative. We tend to take the Bible literally, which I do too. But we need to understand where we take it literally. Because a lot of Christians cause problems when they don't understand how to take the Bible literally. When Jesus is talking from an Old Testament perspective, we need to understand that. When he's talking from a new kingdom perspective, we need to understand that. Or else you end up taking parts literally that Jesus is like, that's Old Testament, here's where grace is. Or we, we toss out something like the deep concept of marriage saying, ah, it's just a social contract. We need to understand Jesus in order to take him literally. And part of the scripture that we need to incorporate into this discussion is this one about repentance, grace, and forgiveness. John writes this in, in the letter of 1 John which is a powerful letter. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. And where does that darkness come from? You'll find out. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So where does the darkness come from? If we claim to be without sin. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. There's where darkness is. Oh, I don't have any sin in my life. There's no problem here. I'm perfect. Which, by the way, is a false teaching that's very prevalent in some of the higher, like these big-name guys in the church, uh, Christianity. They'll tell you they don't, they don't sin anymore. And it's like, really? I think that was a sin. <laughs> to pridefully say we don't sin anymore. It's true that we're forgiven of our sin. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness except for the area of divorce. Is that what the scripture says? No. He will purify us from all unrighteousness. So if we are willing to face our sin, confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, then we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our life. Now, this is the uncomfortable place that Fred found himself in. He didn't want to call it sin that he had married Sue. And so by doing that, by having, the, by having his marriage to Sue kind of intertangled with the sins he had committed against his first two wives, he was just in this place where he felt stuck. 
And he couldn't walk in a place of, of freedom and freshness, even though he'd been in this relationship for 20-some years. And then he said, Dear children, I write this to you so you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus goes to bat for you when you confess your sin. Jesus knows what your sin is. He died for it. It's not like Jesus goes, Whoa, really? You did that? He knows what it's about. He suffered for it. It's not news to him. And yet he still loves you. Scripture tells us, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ loved us and gave himself for us. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. One of the things I see rarely addressed when Christians in divorce is this area of repentance, real repentance, divorce and remarriage. Because I think the reason is, one, is, is we know this could be misused. We know this can be a mind game, right? You're smart people. You know that you know, someone can say, well, okay, then I repent, Whoa. and now I'm fine. You know, we know that we can do that, right? It's, we're capable of that kind of mind play as, as human beings. But let me tell you, if you're doing that, you're a Pharisee, total Pharisee. This is the pharisaical mindset. I follow this letter of the law, and now I'm okay, regardless of what I really feel inside. So I go repent, I'm sorry, and now I'm okay. For example, when uh, Prince Charles, and I don't want to get into Prince Charles' own inner workings and all that, but I found it interesting that when he married Camilla Parker Bowles, but right before the marriage, they went to this little chapel, and they both repented of the sins that they had committed of adultery with each other and all the weird stuff that went on in their lives beforehand, and then they got married. And I found it, I didn't know what to make of it. But at least I thought it was kind of interesting that at least the, the Church of England made them go through at least a theater of repentance. Whether or not it was a repentance of the heart, God only knows. But we have a hard time approaching this. One reason why we have a hard time approaching this and repentance is because very often if we feel like we were the victim, we're like, I don't need to repent. He needs to repent. I don't need to repent. She needs to repent. I'm not, if he repents, maybe I'll repent. We'll see. You know, we, we have this back and forth about who the victim is. And I've done this enough to know everyone feels victimized. Everybody very often feels like they have the right to do it. It's the rare person, and it's almost the rare arrogant person that goes, yep, I committed the sin, and I don't care. Well, at least it's clear who the villain is here. But that's not, that's not very often. And in fact, that person usually has some other things going on too. And so we never really come to the place of repentance because we're like, well, I don't need to repent. They need to repent. I didn't cause the problems. They caused the problems. And you know what? Maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. But I want you to understand something here, that repentance and forgiveness is what will put an end to the judgment and guilt that is associated with sin. Look at, this ver look at this sentence here and understand this. Repentance and forgiveness, true repentance, and I'm not even, you know, it's between you and God, I can't say what's true in your heart, but repentance and forgiveness puts an end to the judgment and guilt that's associated with sin. We are purified from our unrighteousness. Not just a little bit. You are purified. You can't be a little bit purified. Either you are or you're not. And it says if we, are, if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There's this little quote that I really like. It says this. Forgiveness means repentance meets grace and grace meets repentance. Look at that. 
Forgiveness means that repentance means grace. And grace meets repentance. And of the two of these, God provides the forgiveness and the grace. The only thing that we bring to the table is the repentance. And when repentance comes to the table, then that is met by the grace of God through the cross of Jesus Christ, who died for the sins, not only of yours, but of the whole world's. We just read that in the scripture. And this grace, when it, when it comes in contact with true repentance, flows forgiveness. Out of that grace flows forgiveness. And this is what Fred ran into when he finally talked with Sue about, you know, this is how I'm feeling about this relationship. She understood where he was coming from because she had had the same questions herself, but she was afraid to ask because she didn't want Fred to feel like she regretted marrying him. And when they realized that the repentance that they needed to lay before the Lord didn't mean that they regretted being together, that they had gotten married, but it meant they regretted the avenue by which they met one another. They regretted the pain they caused along the way. Then they were able to both pray and repent. And he said, man, when that happened, it was like the weight of the world lifted off his shoulders. And both he and Sue could be more honest and intimate with each other because they were never dancing around the elephant in the room, which was, we got here because I was a tavern owner who went after you when I was still married to my second wife, got you pregnant before we got married, and now we're, we've been married for 20 years. That was gone. Because forgiveness mean, means repentance means, meets grace, and grace meets repentance. And I know for some of you, you may not like that idea. And that's fine. But I need to ask you, are you being literalistic without taking into account the whole of the Scripture? Because when Jesus says there's one unforgivable sin, he doesn't list divorce and remarriage. There's one unforgivable sin, and that is what? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to get into what that means, but I can tell you, it doesn't include, he doesn't say blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and divorce and remarriage. There's forgiveness. He says so. There's only one unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I want to end with this. I don't know where you're at, how you got to where you're at, if you're in this place. Some of you I do know where you're at and how you got there. Some of you I don't. But for you to be righteous before God, and like if your ex-spouse or whatever is just kind of off, out of the picture, or they still bring abuse into the picture, you can't control them. And even if you say, I was the victim, 99% of the issue here was that person's fault. I'm only 1% of the problem then embrace that 1%. Embrace it. Admit it. Seek repentance. Seek forgiveness. And accept grace. I would tell you to do this if you had committed any other sin that you felt badly about, that, that God had brought up. If you said, Pastor Jeff, sometime in my life, you know, I, I, uh, I was in a desperate situation and I began to get into the habit of shoplifting food from, the, from some of the local stores, I would say, well, you need to repent, which means to stop it. Seek God, what does he want you to do in restitution, which is, does he want you to go back and repay those folks? What does he want you to do? Accept what you feel the Spirit is leading you, know that you are forgiven by God, and move on with your life. Don't sit there and sit there and spin and never grow, never do anything in the church because you feel like, I'm in this place of unforgiveness. No, seek God for forgiveness. Go with him with true repentance. I would say it for any sin, and I would say it for this too. Not to make light of it, 
Not to say this becomes your get-out-of-jail-free card. I'm sorry. But if you are truly willing to come into that place of really seeking, your, seeking it before the Lord, then do so, knowing that according to the Scripture, this is not unforgivable, and that with repentance comes grace and forgiveness. Now, I know that everyone has like kind of nuances to their relationships, and I know the ones been here 10 years, I know that some of the ones that have happened here, they're all nuanced, none of them the same, there's always kind of some particulars in all of it. And if you're in a place that you want to talk about some of the particulars of your relationship, then we can talk about that. One of the things that I did after I had this talk with Fred is that I, uh, I made it available to some other folks that if they want to walk through kind of a forgiveness similar to what Fred had, and Sue had worked out, then, then we could. We could kind of walk through a prayer. And not that, not that my words written down of the way that I think you should do it has any more weight. Just there's a brother walking along with you. That's how I am as a pastor. I walk along with you as a brother. I'm not your priest from on high that says, if you do X, Y, and Z, everything's cool. God and I have a personal, you know, he checks my calendar, I check his calendar, we work things out. You know, no, I'm in relationship with God. I'm walking in this journey of faith just like you. But if I can help you in this, I'm more than willing to do so. And if you are married and you're struggling, get help before the hole goes too deep. And that help doesn't have to be me, but get help. Get people around you to help support your marriage because your marriage is precious to the eyes of God. And if you're in that place, that peaceful place of just kind of walking in this place of limbo, know that true repentance leads to true grace and true forgiveness and true righteousness. So seek the Lord and ask him, where do I need to be in this place? With humility and grace. And no, you're not, not everyone's going to agree with me on this, and that's totally fine. But I'm willing to walk with you regardless of what you agree with or don't agree with because I'm your pastor. And I know that some of the lives are hurting right now. And I know the church hurts with divorce. We have as much divorce in the church as outside the church. You know that, right? And God doesn't want it that way. And I know you don't want it that way. Let's pray. Father God, we look for you in all the things of our lives. Lord, there are times that oh, we struggle. Because the things of life, man, life is just much more messy than, than, uh, than we would like it to be. And, you know, as we go deeper into your word, we find that there's very often uh, places where we would like a law to be laid down, and you don't. You still say it's about relationship. It's still about keeping our eyes on you. It's still about uh, being formed into the image of Christ, which is all a little bit somewhat subjective sometimes, Lord. Because we're all unique individuals. So we pray that we can come to you with good intention, with humility, and with love, and seek you out in the difficult questions of life. And this is certainly one of them. And people are in different places, Lord. Some people are in a stable and strong marriage, and this would be just like good information, maybe something to talk to a friend or a family member about. But, Lord, there's also those that this, this hits a very raw and wounded uh, nerve that has been exposed by pain as they are in the process of this kind of breakdown in their life. And Lord, I just pray your spirit be around them. Lift them up. Give them when they, have the, when they are able to and have the willingness to do so, look at their own sin and seek you and find righteousness and forgiveness and peace. And in forgiveness and peace, be able to move on with their life. 
Lord, uh, we do pray that uh, young people, too, that are thinking about getting married, God, that they will consider deeply what it is they're walking into. And it's a beautiful and loving thing. But it is a profound thing in your eyes. And may we respect how you see marriage. And may that perspective of Christ change how we treat one another and love our spouses. Because it's impossible for us to say we love our brothers or we love Christ and at the same time despise our closest brother or sister in Christ. So we submit this all to you, trusting in you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.